You are listening to the Rethinking Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm a former pastor turned brewer with a deep love of theology and philosophy. While I don't always wear the label comfortably, Christianity seems to be baked into who I am. I've found a home within the world of process relational thinking and have made close friends with the mystics. So whether you're a devout believer, a questioning skeptic, a bold atheist, or simply someone trying to figure out what it means to be human, you belong here. Thank you for joining me and taking the risk of entering into this sacred space. And thank you for reminding me that we aren't alone on this journey. Let us imagine a better way to be human together. Shall we begin? All right, friends, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and joining me today, actually, I, I just did the math five minutes ago for the eighth time in really? Rethinking Faith history, <laughs> it's Dr. Oh. Thomas J. Ward. Tom, how are you doing? Man, that's that's really cool. I enjoyed having our conversation, but I didn't realize it was eight times. That's yeah. really cool. It's been eight, also eight times in five years. Actually, I remember... You were one of the first, if not the first, um, scholars, theologians, uh, well-respected individuals <laughs> that I reached <laughs> out to and was like, hey, um, I read your book and I would love to talk about it. Would you be willing to come on? And you were nice enough to do so. And oh, here we are really cool. eight conversations later. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, I was... Uh, in a most in a recent uh, Patreon like exclusive episode I did with Trip, he was a little bit jaded because he thought that he had the most appearances on Rethinking Faith. But I told him, <laughs> "Well, actually, it's Tom." And so I did I did the math, and because he brought up the patron exclusive episodes, Trip's been on the main feed five times, um, or uh, four times rather, but he has four patron episodes. So technically, oh. he's been on the eight times, and this is your eight times, but you've been eight time made feed because you are not somebody who hides behind paywalls like Trip. And so, <laughs> oh, I love so it. I, I still give it to you. I still give it to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, Tom, I, so I wanted to talk to you today specifically because there's some a really cool series of events um, and also maybe a book connected and maybe an online class. Uh, that you and Trip are actually doing together. And so I thought it would be fun. Let's have a conversation, uh, maybe promote that a little bit, but also let's grab some listener questions and see what that generates for us. And Excellent. so I guess maybe to start, do you want to talk a little bit about what is this like God after deconstruction thing you guys seem to be uh, working on? Yeah, I mean, so many people are talking about deconstruction today, writing great books, great podcasts. Uh, it is in the air, and for good reasons, because there are uh, at least nine, according to the research we've done, nine legitimate reasons why people are uh, deconstructing their faith. Everything from just changing what they believe to walking away from belief in God altogether. And... Uh, and while we recognize the legitimate reasons people deconstruct, we also knew that there were, a, or there is a different way to think about God and religion 
that we call open relational or process theology. And so the idea for this book in-person uh, series, uh, as well as online class, is to talk about the reasons people deconstruct and then to propose this alternative open and relational vision of God. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I, I'm excited for it. I remember uh, when Trip had called me and first told me <laughs> that you guys were working on this. Um, I was excited because, you know, as somebody whose own story is that I kind of, you know, did the deconstruction thing and open and relational thinking process thinking is really what kind of helped, I guess, keep me connected, <laughs> so to speak, right, or something right. like that, or at least has given me a, um, what I think is a much healthier or better framework. Uh, it, that's really cool. And so I'm glad that you guys are kind of um, spreading that message. <laughs> so yeah. to speak. Well, and you know, every deconstructive story is a little different from the next, but Trip and I share with you this commonality of finding the resources and the ways of thinking and open relational thought so helpful uh, given kind of the bad stuff we'd either been taught or heard when we were younger. And so we want to share this, you know, um, we don't come to this conversation thinking we have all the answers or somehow God downloaded the, you know, the eternal truths into our head and we're just giving them out to the public. You know, we're, we're on an adventure as well, but these ideas have been so helpful to us and we want other people to know about them. Yeah, one one might say you've been on an adventure in ideas. Wink, yes. wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice yeah. reference to Whitehead's book. <laughs> yeah, and that's um, that's actually what you just said is is actually one of the reasons I have found process or open relational thinking to be so helpful is that there is almost baked into it this kind of um. I don't want to say anti dogmatism, but it is. It's very. It's difficult or. It lends itself nicely to not be super dogmatic um, right. in the sense that the framework is flexible. There's definitely things um, that as a process person, I believe, um, but also it leaves space to be wrong. Or if we learn something yeah. new from experience or from science or from, you know, whatever, there's room for it to kind of grow and expand as our, our faith shifts and molds as well. And so I, I find that deeply attractive about the the framework. Yeah. And if you look at the diverse uh, stories of deconstruction that are, you know, on social media, on podcasts and books, et cetera, one of the commonalities is a recognition that people could not be absolutely sure or certain of the things that they had been told before, the things they had been taught. And this pulling the rug of certainty out from underneath them left people in a sort of a, a situation where they didn't know what to do because they thought that if you were a really good Christian or a really good Jew or whatever, then you ought to be absolutely certain about God and certain about the at least the essentials of the faith. And and uh, one of the things that open and relational thought does from the get-go is to say, you know what, this certainty thing is not only overrated, it's just wrong. We can't be 100% certain about things, and that's just the way life is. And that's good news, actually, because that means we can be humble, we're more open to conversation, we're, we're on that adventure in which we can learn new things on the path. Hmm. Yeah, and... Uh... 
for me, the kind of <laughs> the certainty piece was something that was so drilled into me and that I, you know, I sought out for myself. Um, but in a weird way, I think the certainty piece actually backfires because uh, what yeah. happens is when I have a framework that I think I'm 100% certain about, right? And then let's take something easy like the Bible. The, the Bible is inerrant. I'm 100% certain on this. As soon as one thing shows up that leads me to doubt or question, or it seems to say like, oh, I don't know if the Bible's right about this. Um, it destroys my entire faith system. Right. Because I was so set on certainty. And so that certainty piece, even though, you know, kind of, I guess it stems from this like post enlightenment. Now we got to, you know, whatever kind of thing. Um, it backfired because there are so many people who were handed the certainty um, and then they have the same experience that you and I are talking about. Something happens, it unravels, the rug is pulled out from underneath them. And then they're like, oh, great. I guess if that's what Christian is, or if that's what, you know, insert whatever worldview religion, I can't do that because. Yeah. Well, and there certain. is, <laughs> my experience is the same as yours, but there are some people who, uh, you know, think they're certain about things, then find out they can't, they're not certain. And then what they do is they shift their allegiance onto some authority outside themselves to tell them that the Bible is inerrant or whatever. And so those folks usually do that to their, a pastor or uh, some church leader or somebody like that, or maybe it's a, you know, a Christian superstar on the radio or whatever. Um, and then they're especially vulnerable to being manipulated by that external authority and because they they're putting their whole trust in that authority having it all together and what that means then is that they can easily be, be led down you know really stupid political paths for instance or when that leader uh you know, has uh, some sexual misconduct and their character is questioned and that, you know, puts them in an existential crisis. Uh, so some people, unlike you and me, they shift their authority for certainty elsewhere, but that doesn't get them, you know, it doesn't help either. Yeah, actually, I will, <laughs> I want to comment on that real quick, because this is one of the, I think it was the, one of the more difficult lessons for me to learn. Um, in my whole like kind of faith journey, etc., um, is that often in this kind of deconstruction space, um, we do do it, you know, do what you're saying, kind of, um, maybe shift our allegiance or something like that. And so I made the mistake of, um, finding somebody, you know, kind of like what you're talking about, who I really looked up to, I respected them. Um, I felt they had the right theology. They had good theology. It uh, favored women. It was not racist. You know, it was like Jesus centered, yep. etc. And then even that person turns out fell into big time sex scandal. It blew up their church completely. Um, yeah. I knew them in a personal way. So I felt like I was lied to. And that yeah. really kind of that wrecked me on a whole nother level because I had placed again uh, faith or trust or certainty in somebody just because they had like the right theology or something like that. And that was a difficult lesson for me to learn. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I suppose since you introduced this whole project, I suppose I ought to give listeners a little more detail. Is it all right if I jump into a little of that? 
Yeah, absolutely. That'd be most helpful. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, this class that's coming up, Tripp and I are doing it on homebrew. It's going to be a class in which we explore the reasons why people deconstruct and then, again, propose open relational. And just to list uh, the nine reasons we're going to we're going to explore. Uh, one reason people deconstruct is what we've been talking about, this loss of certainty. Another is uh, people have a certain view of scripture, inerrancy, or biblical authority or inspiration. And that is, you know, taken from them because they actually read the Bible. Uh, third, uh, it's a problem of evil, pointless pain, genuine suffering. If God is truly loving and powerful, why doesn't God stop that? Fourth, uh, church abuse. It's not so much the theoretical questions of God and evil, but, you know, here's this institution that's supposed to be the bride of Christ, supposed to be representing what Jesus is all about. And yet that institution has been so abusive and caused so much trauma for so many people. Uh, and those folks typically walk away from the church if they're if they have the courage or the uh, the opportunity to do so. So church abuse is another reason. Uh, fifth. Conflicts with science over questions of evolution, over questions of uh, climate change. So many churches are were against the, any sort of pandemic regulations. They didn't want to get vaccinated. And many conscientious people are like, look, do I really want to be associated with a group that's so anti-scientific that it actually has negative consequences for my neighbor? So people are deconstructing over that. Uh, another issue sexual and gender questions. Uh, so many people are queer or queer allies or have friends who are queer. And the church, at least major portions of it, have not been loving and accepting and endorsing of healthy uh, queer sexual behavior. And so folks are saying, do I want to be a part of a, a, a group that isn't an affirming group? Especially, I'm seeing this with younger people who have children and you, you would have thought that maybe when they had children, they'd take them back to church, even though they might not have attended in their 20s or whatever. But they're saying to themselves, I don't want to take my kids to a church that doesn't love queer people. So they're not taking their kids back to church. Uh, another issue, Christian nationalism, the election of Donald Trump had many people walking away from faith and deconstructing. Uh, another is the question of religious uh, plurality and multiple religions. What do you do with this? If there's not one right way, is there one better way? How do you think about that? So many Christians uh, groups are saying it's either our way or the highway or <laughs> the highway to hell. Uh, and then the last one I think of, I've gone through all my nine, is the question of purpose. And that's really kind of a bigger question. If there is not a God who is controlling, who's got a plan that everything is working out the way God wanted, then how does my life have purpose? What is the purpose of life in general and me in particular? So this class is going to look at those questions, offer some answers, but also um, we're going to do some live events. And you mentioned, uh, I well, maybe you didn't mention, I'll mention it, uh, February 9 through 10 at Drew University. You're going to be a part of that one. Uh, that uh, event is a Friday night, all day Saturday. And um, in addition to the three of us being there, also uh, John Thetominal, Catherine Keller, 
Alexis Lilly and Bruce Epperly are going to be speaking. And a lot of the focus on that one is going to be the question of religious pluralism. And then in uh, April, April, uh, let's see if I can get the dates right. I think it's 12th and 13th at uh, Highlands United Me or uh, St. Andrew Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch, uh, Colorado, which is outside of Denver. We're going to be doing the same kind of uh, set of questions and, and issues, but uh, featured there are, in addition to Tripp and me, uh, Nicole Torbitsky, Mark Feldmeyer, um, uh, Kathy Escobar, and uh, Tim Burnett. Uh, so those are, you can find out more information on those live or in-person events on Eventbrite if you just look under God After Deconstruction. And you can sign up for the online class if you, I think, Google God After Deconstruction. You'll get to Trips page, I think. Sweet. Well, yeah, I will, um, listeners, I will link all of that information in the show notes. That way they can just go in and quickly find the Eventbrite page and all. But um, those events are going to be super fun and the, the class will be as well. It was uh, interesting kind of listening you go through the the nine different uh, reasons you kind of laid out there and seeing just how many of them uh, resonated with me. Mm. But also it was an interesting just looking back and being self-reflective to see like which ones um, stood out when for me, yeah. if that makes yeah. sense, because it's kind of layered, right? It's yep. not always necessarily all at once. I know like the theodicy question was one of the first ones for me, which is how I found you and your work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, but then some of the other, you know, things like institution, I was, you know, faced serious abuse at the hands of other pastors when I was a pastor. Um, you know, the science questions I have. Uh, brothers who are within the LGBTQ community. So I want to be in a place where my brothers and friends are allowed. So, yep. all, so many of these kind of um, resonate with me and especially it, re more recently, it's been religious pluralism stuff. That's kind of what um, I've been studying uh, actually at Northwind. So shout out to Northwind, another cool thing yeah. you're a part of. <laughs> yeah, but, cool. Um, yeah. So, all right. I, thought what could be fun is if we gathered some questions from listeners uh in regard to exactly this like god after deconstruction i kept it kind of vague intentionally um and so i have a whole bunch of them but the first one that i wanted to offer you we talked a little bit about it before we started recording and i know that you weren't super comfortable with how the listener phrased this question they used the word freaking they said, why is Josh so freaking cool? And you didn't want to do anything to get yourself in trouble, you know, anything like that. So it's like, all right, Tom, I won't ask it with freaking. But, you know, while I respect your desire to remove the word freaking from the question, I do want to say something about that. OK, here's here's my pitch. Freaking, OK, is a title that confers on Josh an overwhelming level of coolness, not cool as applied to a good movie, the perfect date, or a Counting Crows concert, but freaking cool is ontologically distinct and prior to anything that is simply cool. <laughs> to say that Josh is freaking cool is to say that the person of Josh participates in the coolness that initiates and sustains all of creation. And so I just wanted to make sure that we were capturing the ontological distinctives of this listener's question, Tom. 
prior and that's why i want to use the word freaking but to respect you i won't do it <laughs> <laughs> oh i like your answer <laughs> but all right just kidding we're not we won't we won't do that i we don't need to pad my ego that's a silly question why is josh so freaking cool <laughs> whatever let's uh <laughs> let's instead start here so if we're talking about god after deconstruction um i'm curious tom what what image of God do you personally feel like maybe in your own experience you had to like deconstruct from? So let's, let's start there. Like what, what God are we is being called into question here? Yeah, I think there are various uh, dimensions, attributes of the God that I reject that took me a while to uh, you know, reject that God. One, you and I have talked about a lot on episodes, and that's the omnipotent God. But another was a God who um, was fickle, a God who may or may not love, uh, a God who, um, you know, basically I had to catch God in a good mood if God was going to be a loving individual to me. And I think this worry is associated with a very common uh, analogy, at least in the Christian tradition and, and other religious traditions too, but especially Christians. We oftentimes want to compare God to a loving parent. And I like that analogy. It's just that every human parent I've ever known is not perfectly loving. <laughs> and so uh, it, it, you know, is not not consistent in the way that I think God is consistent. So it took me a while to kind of come to the place where I could uh, say, while I do think love, the love of God has some similarities with creaturely love, the idea that God is consistently, everlastingly, in fact, necessarily loving, that took me a while to embrace, but when I did, it brought such psychological benefit. Yeah, that, and, and I mean, like you said, we've talked about it many, many times. And so listeners can find those conversations. Um, but I'm with you on that. And the, I think the hardest part about that for me has been moving from, especially in like early on having conversations with you the kind of understanding of God um, that I had maybe in like, a, in like the metaphysical sense or like even I guess like this like ontologically distinct being that is like up there and out there somewhere, mm -hmm. um, calling that into question and then doing like all the God can't stuff, but still trying to fit that kind of like out there God into this yeah. open and relational framework there was, does that make sense? There was a friction for me. And so shifting away from that understanding of the divine into something that is more, um, I don't know, present in and through all things or, right, right, uh, right. this kind of, you know, this kind of thing was a big shift that that took time for me to kind of, you know, move into and kind of make these kind of metaphysical distinctions. Um, if yeah. the, does that make sense? Does that kind of tension? Sure yeah. Are you see what I'm saying? Yeah, because uh, I mean, what usually happens is people grow up or are taught or come to assume a notion of God who's somewhere out there who maybe intervenes occasionally, 
uh, you have to pray and hope that that God is listening out there. But there's this radical distinction between where I'm at and where God is at. And you hope God's around. You hope, you know, there's some sort of uh, relationship there. And then when you realize how bad a view of that is, often the you think the, the uh, proper response is to just say, well, God is everywhere and everything is God, a kind of pantheism, because you you react in, to the God out there and you want God being everywhere. Everything is divine. Everything is God. And you'll hear lots of people say this, especially in, you know, in uh, contemporary, uh, more popular theological circles. But the problem with saying everything is divine, everything is God, is that you have to say Donald Trump is God. And I just can't get myself to say that. I have to say I'm God. And um, everything that's evil in the world is God. And I just, that I, I want to have a distinction, a moral distinction. <laughs> and I want to believe that God's a perfect being who is perfectly loving. Uh, and so that's where the panentheism stuff or what I like to call theocosmocentrism or some kind of a distinction between creation and creator. And yet the creator or God is present to everyone and everything in every moment. Yeah, that's helpful. I would I want to say maybe something like instead of saying Donald Trump is God, we could say that uh, the potential for God to be expressed or made actualized in and through the person of Donald Trump exists, whether or not Donald Trump gives in <laughs> to the yes. divine lore and chooses to act on the things that makes, you know, that actualizes the divine um is another totally question. More that. Yeah, <laughs> totally on board with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, you yeah. know, I don't want to say Donald Trump is intrinsically evil. I don't right. want to have a, a world, a dualistic world of some beings are perfectly good and others are perfectly evil. I don't believe in that either. I think every part of creation is intrinsically good. And yet, creatures can choose to do other than what this loving lure at the heart of the universe is calling them to do. So yeah, those are important distinctions in my way of thinking. Hmm. Sweet. All right. Well, so kind of in line with the, you know, this understanding of if we're going to stick on the God topic specifically, um, and you can tell this question was written by a uh, philosopher <laughs> okay. and they asked, I can, I can name who they are. I'm sure they wouldn't mind, but um. They asked, why is deconstruction so often confused with or even thought to entail a rejection of divine personalism? I see no good argument for such a position. Yeah, I don't know who said this or asked this question, but I am a person who thinks that God is a person. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a personalist in that sense. I, however, understand why some people who go through deconstruction want to reject the idea of a personal God. And I think it fundamentally has to do with two images of what it means to be a person. One image, or personal, one image is that a God is person means that God has just a big body somewhere. And um, I don't think that's a good way to think about God, because if God has a big body somewhere, then God's not an omnipresent spirit. God isn't present and active in all creation. Um, so another re reason I think people want to reject God as person is that the persons they know uh, are um, 
not just localized, but also personal kind of sounds like God only cares about some people and some things. So people say, well, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. That sounds like, at least in some instances, it sounds like God likes me and God picked me or I picked God and God's concerned now with what I care about, but not the rest of you, sorry suckers. And so that kind of exclusivism, people are deconstructing from that view for good reasons. And I embrace that. I would like to say that God is not a person with a body somewhere out there, but God is personal in the sense of giving and receiving everywhere in the entire universe and any universe that exists as a universal personal or relational spirit. So I agree with the, uh, the tone of the question <laughs> there, but I understand why initially at least some people walk away from belief in a personal God. Yeah. I, I too, uh, kind of resonated, I guess, with the, the tone, <laughs> the tone of the question. Um, as you put it, and this this question was actually penned by a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Aaron Simmons. Oh, um, good. Uh, yeah. yeah, Aaron. Aaron asked this question, which I think is is a good question, um, because I think really the temptation, at least experientially for myself, the temptation is there to kind of reject this like yes. kind of personal understanding of God, especially if it's tied up in these other ugly images of the divine that you talked about earlier and in previous yeah. conversations. Um, yeah, and, and for me, that um, just, ex again, experientially, I've had such a desire to try to hold on to the personal aspect. And, and maybe that has come from my inclination towards more like contemplative practice or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I'm just a sucker for uh, the kind of myth that, <laughs> if you want to call it that, right, um, a framework in which uh, the divine is um, deeply personal and cares and these kind of things. Um, I don't think that's actually a myth, but that, that framework works for me. Um, yeah, I'm with and, you. Uh, you used the word care there. Yeah. You know, my personal, the most important reason for me to think God is personal is my commitments to the ultimacy of love. I can't imagine a perfect lover being impersonal. So, cause to me, I think of love as giving and receiving. And that's a personal kind of endeavor. So since I'm first and foremost committed to love, not only living a life of love, but believing that in some sense there's a lover who's at the heart of everything that exists, calling all of us to live in loving ways, I'm committed to a metaphysical scheme that undergirds a personal kind of lover. And since, Tom, since you do have this kind of you know, metaphysical scheme that still offers a personal understanding of the divine. Another question from a listener that um, gets asked a lot within the deconstruction space is this, how would you describe what it means to have a relationship with God? Mm, um, yeah. In any meaningful way, can we say that we have relationship with the divine? Yeah. So I think some people talk about a relationship with God but have a traditional view of God in mind. And people who have that view will say something like, you need to have a personal relationship with God. And by that, they mean you need to start focusing your attention on who God is, maybe reading the Bible, praying, 
um, it's all on us to kind of reorienting ourselves and our desires and our attention, our focus onto God. And I got no problem with that approach. But open relational theology says something really important that I think is profound. And it, it is this. God is also having a relationship with us. So a personal relationship with God, God's having a personal relationship with us. There's mutual influence. What we're doing is having an impact on God. What God's doing is having an impact on us. And that, I think, matters for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is that if you and I actually have an influence on the God of the universe, and the God of the universe has moving through history, trying to bring about the purposes of love, our lives truly matter. And that's really important to me. Yes, I I am with you. And that kind of gets at that question of purpose. I think that was the ninth one on your list um, yes. that you had referenced is that idea of purpose. And I actually, I know I wrestled with that when I was trying to think about, okay, if God um, either somehow wrote the whole story, right? Creation, the universe, whatever is a book. It's already been written, signed, sealed, delivered, got, you know, by God. This is kind of yeah. the Calvinistic understanding. Um, then what I'm doing has no purpose in my mind because shit was already written. Great. Right. On the other hand, I could say, well, God at least knows the future and knows the past and this kind of thing. Uh, but again, for me, I felt purposeless because it's like, well, if God already knows the future, then I can't really do otherwise, can I? <laughs> like it's still kind of set in stone. It's a, it's an illusion at that point. And so open and relational thinking kind of not at, at first a hang up of mine was this, that like, okay, is this like a works righteousness thing? I'm now earning my way of salvation. It was like, well, no, this is actually, I think a deeper invitation to participate as you were saying with the divine to bring about the things that are good and beautiful and true. And so it actually, um, like you said, it gives my life purpose. It, it, invites me into something um, and implicates me in the larger story in a way that genuinely matters. And yes. in my mind, as a pastor, I was always focused on this word transformation. Like what, what is something that is trans transformative in my life? And this kind of invitation that you're talking about seems to me to be transformative because it's inviting me constantly into something deeper and meaningful and beautiful. And if I participate yes. with the divine as divine, you know, is is looking to bring about love and and goodness and kindness and beauty, etc. I like that a lot. You know, yeah. it's it's uh, widely accepted in open and relational theology that um, the future is open. God isn't even sure what's going to happen, and our actions uh, contribute to the unfolding of reality of existence. Um, but there is a um, it, it, there is. Uh, a diversity of opinions with an open and relational thought on the question of God's power. So while everyone wants to say, yep, we have real freedom, our choices make a difference to what happens in the future, there are some in the open and relational community who think of God's power and the way God responds, and they think that no matter what happens, God is going to be victorious in the end by bringing everyone to salvation or at least, you know, fulfilling the kind of uh, hopes that God wants for all of creation. 
And then there's others in the camp who don't think God has that kind of power. And if you're in that latter group, I think you have even more reason to believe that our choices matter because um, the, the, the future of the universe rests in part on how we respond to this God of love. Um, that's real responsibility. Um, and I'm, I'm attracted more to that, that latter option. Yeah. Okay. So we have, we have a relationship with the divine, right? Still after this, you know, kind of deconstruction thing within the open relational framework. Mm -hmm. Another part of things that people often deconstruct from is the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. So if we've, Tom, we've deconstructed our faith and we're looking at this open relational stuff, um, what do we do with the Bible? Do we still like read the thing? Does its stories even <laughs> still matter? Like <laughs> how, well, yeah, how can we look at the the Bible as a part of our relationship with God or something like that? So, you know, they're often framed together. Our personal relationship with God is reading the Bible every day or something like that. Yeah, I think I want to answer that by actually dipping into a chapter in the book that Tripp and I are currently writing because I lay out the issues with the Bible, you know, the, the, the errors there, not only errors in history, but errors in the way that God is talked about. Um, sometimes God is talked about as a forgiving God. And other times some biblical passages uh, portray God as kicking your butt and doing uh, things that sure seem evil. Um, so the question is, where does the Bible then fit in? So um, here are, uh, I think I've got eight or so ways to think about or interact with the Bible. First of all, some people just need to take a break from the Bible. It's okay to set it aside. You might set it aside for the rest of your life, but it might just be for a time. But some people are so burned or burned out by scripture that I would advise them to take a break from the Bible. Other people need to learn that it's okay to argue with the text. It's okay to disagree with what the scriptures say. Some people need to find out what the big themes are of the Bible. So in other words, sort of ask yourself, okay, uh, maybe there's some parts of scripture I don't buy into, but what are the, the things I think are the main points in scripture? And, and can I buy into those? Still others, uh, this is kind of maybe a variation of the previous, they they pick out the good and reject the bad. I'm advocating what fundamentalists hate. I'm advocating picking and choosing from the Bible. I think Jesus did it. I think we ought to do it too. Uh, a fifth dimension is to say, look, the Bible is written by people. People make mistakes. People don't know things. So embrace the, the human factor of scripture. It doesn't mean that God has nothing to do with it. But it does mean that humans write scripture and humans can make real mistakes. They have different views of who God is and what's going on in reality. Uh, one of the ways that um, our friend Brian McLaren likes to talk about reading scriptures, he, sa he says you ought to read the Bible literarily, by which he means you ought to look at scripture and look at the genres and ask questions about what the authors are doing with the narrative. Another approach to scripture is to say Jesus is the point of scripture. And this is very common amongst Christians. I think sometimes this is actually um, overdone. People see Jesus everywhere. 
I saw something on social media this week that said something like the point of every passage of scripture is Jesus. And I responded with, no, it's not. <laughs> There's lots of parts of scriptures that don't have anything directly to do with Jesus. And then finally, uh, a final way to think about scripture is to think of it as the potential for a progress, what's sometimes called progressive revelation. That is, uh, people get better or clearer views of God. And as someone who's a Christian, I think Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. But uh, I think you can make a good argument that in the scriptures themselves, we see some kind of a movement from uh, images of God that I think are more uh, less helpful to those that are more helpful. So little taste of what uh, one small portion of the book is about. Yeah, nice. I'm glad that you guys are doing a, a chapter on engaging with the script uh, with the Bible because I think that's um, so important, especially too. If I can do a soapbox thing for a moment, similar to how I think um, uh, the kind of certainty that people are often fed can be detrimental, I also think there's like, for lack of a better term, crappy understandings of what the Bible is that prove to be detrimental to people's faith as well. Yeah. Um, where they're sold certain things and then they, I don't know, find Bart Ehrman or at, in general, find like maybe any Bible scholar that knows what's happening in the academy presenting information that to them might now seem like really wild and progressive and crazy. But in reality, it's like, well, no, it's this is just like biblical scholarship. People know these kind of things. And yeah. it unnecessarily causes faith crisis for people. Because the understanding of what the Bible is that they were handed is faulty. And then they think, oh, because I read one Bart Ehrman book, now the whole Bible is bunk. It's like, well, Bart just said stuff that like a bunch of Bible scholars have been saying for a while. <laughs> Maybe right, he has some right. different conclusions. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad that you guys are kind of engaging that. And I guess for me, the way that I have been kind of looking at the Bible or trying to, because this is still something that even though I have a soapboxy thing to say about, I'm not good at doing <laughs> <So> engaging, <laughs> engaging the Bible. Um, but I've, I've been attracted to this idea of like scripture is almost like a mirror or as something to wrestle with. Right. And I think we see the biblical authors wrestling with the text and wrestling with each other um, mm -hmm. in the pages. And I think that when I say scripture is a mirror, that leads me to be like, okay, I'm reading this passage, and in this passage, I think what's happening is not great. Maybe it's good that I think it's not great. Maybe that's the point right. of what is supposed to be happening here, and it's inviting me to something better. Like, this isn't prescriptive, per se. Maybe it's these. I don't know. There's a bunch yeah. there. But um, I like this mirror, this mirror language. End of rant. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's the the Bible bit. Um. Hmm. There's so many different things here. I'm trying to do this succinctly. Let's see. All right. This is a really interesting one. I'm curious because I don't think you and, I've, you and I have talked about this before. How, so like post construction, how should we see something like missions or evangelism after deconstructing our faith? It's not converting people, right? That's the question. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I still care about missions and evangelism, but my model of what missions and evangelism is is radically different. 
Um, what I care most about is living a life of love and encouraging other people to do the, the same. Now, to do that well, I think a person needs to not just talk, but do a lot of listening, trying to figure out where other people are at in their own you know, journeys or own adventures to get back to that word. And so I think evangelism and missions can begin with listening and then in discernment with uh, the people who you're talking with, uh, with the community, try to figure out ways in which, uh, try to figure out ideas, concepts, practices that are going to help people be more loving. Now, I'm really drawn to this Jesus of Nazareth. That's why I'm still in the Christian tradition. And so my missions and evangelism is still going to have a central role for Jesus. But I'm probably not going to ask them to say the sinner's prayer like I would have, you know, 30 years ago when I was doing street evangelism. I'm going to go about those things differently, still with Jesus central to me, but thinking that the the aims of Jesus are to help us to live lives of love as individuals and communities, not so much about making sure, you know, some people go to heaven and avoid the flames of hell, which I don't believe in. Yeah, once you get rid of that hell thing, it it opens up a whole world of stuff. It sure it? does. <laughs> it does. And then I know it's hard for some people to hear that. I know it's hard for some people to give up on hell because uh, they think the alternative is what in philosophy we call extreme relativism, which is, well, if you don't believe in hell, then you can't believe in any kind of moral, your morality. Um, I believe that there are natural negative consequences from choosing other than love. Uh, and that's kind of what biblical passages or biblical writers were trying to talk about when they said things like you reap what you sow. And so therefore we ought to live a life of love, not only for our sake, but for others sake and for God's sake, not because there's hell to pay if you don't, but because there's abundant life to gain if you do. Yeah, and I think that uh, inviting into that, you know, abundant life is a helpful way to frame like, you know, what this person is referring to as missions is not yes. not necessarily, again, with the afterlife implications, but rather um, what does it look like to make the world less shit now <laughs> for right. everybody, right. for everybody, um, which is curious because if you are because another one of these questions has to do with the afterlife. Um, which I think is an interesting question because people tend to default. So, okay, there's no hell. So now like everyone just gets into heaven. Um, I know we've talked about that before. Um, you kind of have a qualified uh, understanding, like a hopeful uh, universalism, a hopeful ultimate reconciliation, something like that. Um, but yeah, I guess, I don't know. Do Is that kind of where you fall currently on afterlife stuff? Um, yeah. Well, I, I want to answer your afterlife thing, but while you were talking, I, I, I thought to myself, I want to give a little bit different answer to your missions question. Is that all right if I okay. do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to make say something harder, harsher, hard, more abrupt. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> uh, this is what I want to say: missions and evangelism only makes good sense if you're open and relational. Uh, I just. Bugs the heck out of, <laughs> bugs, the, bugs the heck out of me that Calvinists who think God predestined everything from all eternity are evangelists and are trying to convince people to say the sinner's prayer. It makes no sense whatsoever. 
they're only doing it because they think God commanded it. There's no real, at least as far as I can tell, there's no real conceptual sense to it. And even the Arminians, the tradition I came from, who think that God foreknows everything from all eternity, I think that only makes sense if all eternity is already settled and complete, and therefore one's eternal destiny has already been decided, the choices one makes has already been determined. And so... Um, Evangelism makes no sense to me in an Arminian concept either. So I want to say stronger than my first answer. Open and relational theology can make sense of evangelism and missions in ways that other theologies just can't do it. So now to your question about the afterlife. Nice. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I start with God's love when I think of the afterlife. Um and if it's possible to continue having subjective experience beyond the death of the body, and if there is a God of love, then I think that God is not going to torture, hurt, harm uh, anyone in an afterlife state. However, I'm also really committed to the views of uh, freedom. I think, as you know, that God can't control free will creatures. And I have no reason to think that in the afterlife, we would lose that freedom. So if there is life after death, and I'm betting that there is, but I don't know, if there's continued subjective experience beyond bodily death, and we have free choices to cooperate well or not with a God of love, I think that continues on and on and on and on. And God never stops inviting, never stops loving. We always have free choices. I'm, I'm hopeful that we will finally and eventually get our act together and all cooperate with God. My scheme doesn't guarantee that because I think that guarantee would only come if God is controlling, and I don't believe in a controlling God, but my scheme allows for the hope of the universal reconciliation that comes through persuasive love that convinces everyone capable of choosing to cooperate with that love. Well, I appreciate the consistency <laughs> in the perspective because, yeah, if you're going to be open and relational, might as well go all the way with it, right? Um, and I'm I'm with you. I think that's that's kind of on hopeful Josh days. That's that's where I'm at. Like I I hope that that is true. Um, but yeah. one thing that has been helpful for me that I kind of discovered, um just in readings and stuff is the idea within some like process thought of uh, objective immortality, this idea that we exist uh, forever within the divine mind or something like that, um, which is not, you know, it's not subjective. We're not experiencing this, uh, but it's at least better than oblivion, I guess. Right. There's some people yeah. who <laughs> are, are deeply afraid, or, you know, fear just non-existence or something like that. Um, yeah. And so I this, think every yeah. open and relational theologian ought to embrace objective immortality. So yeah. that it's not like we should choose between the two. We right. should all embrace that one. Uh, because if God is truly relational, if our lives really make a difference to God and God is truly everlasting, then what we do matters to the mind of God or God's life everlastingly. That's, I mm -hmm. think, really important. But I'm also among those people who think that especially the life after, or the uh, near-death experience literature, the mm -hmm. out-of-body uh, experience literature, the basic parapsychology literature 
gives us some empirical evidence for the possibility of continued subjective experience. And that along with not only, um, you know, traditions and Christian, but also um, almost every major faith tradition has some sort of notion of a subjective experience beyond bodily death, whether it's reincarnation or something else. Um, all my cards are not in that basket, but I don't <laughs> sure. see any reason why I, I shouldn't uh, have that hope. Yeah. I, uh, a resource that helped me with that after I kind of got stuck in like, what if it's just objective, <laughs> you know, whatever, um, was David Ray Griffin's book, James and Whitehead on life after death. Yeah. That's I really book. enjoyed. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading that and found it to be a helpful resource. Um, yes. but also, geez. All right. This is me chasing a rabbit and maybe I'll just leave it as a comment and we don't discuss it cause we should okay. move on a little bit, but I'm curious as to what something like pan experientialism, panpsychism, um, might have to say in this kind of conversation, right? If consciousness is ubiquitous or experience, whatever, um, maybe that lends itself to some kind of subjective something or another. (laughs) I don't know, maybe, but, uh, yeah, we don't have to chase that because that's, uh, (laughs) some people might not even know what I'm asking, but, (laughs) um, and that's fair. All right. Let's see. Be fair on time. How can we do this well? Well, all right. Let me ask you this because you already mentioned this and you actually said this is going to be something that is talked about a bit at the first event in February, uh, which is this idea of uh, pluralism. And so there's two kind of questions here about pluralism. One of it is basically like, why aren't things clearer? Why are there multiple religions? Why wouldn't God just grant this absolute certainty? I think we've hinted at that a bit with kind of your understanding of the divine as non-controlling. But maybe is there anything else you'd want to add to that or maybe something to to shine light into that kind of question? I I want to emphasize that because um, I think there's a growing growing acknowledgement among Christian thinkers that some kind of pluralism is true that there is truth beyond the Christian tradition, that in some sense, Muslims can find salvation, et cetera. Um, But then the question is, why didn't God make things clearer uh, is often just ignored. Uh, Maybe people will say, well, uh, we don't have, you know, infinite minds. Who are we to know the mind of God? And so they put all the blame on us trying to figure out the divine mystery of the reality or whatever. Um, But that avoids the question, or at least avoids uh, what many people think of when they think of God from the Christian and Muslim tradition, which is a God who is omnipotent. And that God, at least according to a, a classical omnipotence, could make things crystal clear, could have guaranteed we had a fully inerrant and complete revelation of who God is uh, in scriptures, the Quran or the Bible or whatever. And uh, so I think it's really important in answering the questions of religious pluralism to say we should give up on omnipotence. We should give up on a God who can unambiguous or give an unambiguous, clear revelation in a kind of controlling way. Now, what people then, a lot of people say, well, okay, that sounds good. So then why should we even talk about God uh, revealing at all? And here, I think it's important to go back to that relational uh, stuff we talked about earlier. Part of being in relationship with someone is influencing them. 
And I think God is a communicator who influences all things at all time, uh, but can't control. And so therefore we have various religious texts. We have really various religious traditions. We even have some religious traditions that don't have a God, uh, not because God is, quote, allowing them to be mistaken about God's existence, but because God simply can't control, and we're all doing the very best we can to try to make sense of, of quote, the light we have been given. Yeah, and so I, well, actually, I like that I took a, a note about ditching omnipotence and religious pluralism as a side note for my own Good. purposes, but <laughs> I think that's I think that's helpful. Um, and it, it, it kind of ties in that too. So if, if you have this, this framework, then, um, when you talk about something like religious pluralism, there's another question that was asked by a listener. They want to know if you hold to something like this religious pluralism, what do you do with passages where God is very clearly portrayed as like, I'm jealous, no other gods before me. I'm the one, you know, Obvious. So do you see what the, the kind of tension that yeah. the listener is getting at? What do we do if passages that seem to be like, mm, can't be pluralism? Well, what I do when I read those passages is I say, I think the writers were trying to say there are better views of God on offer than, than, than the options that are out there. So, uh, you know, for instance, we've talked about God as being personal. Um, if you're worshiping a stone, that stone's not going to be personal. And so I think we can make claims about some views of God being better than others. And that's, I think, what kind of what the religious tradition or the uh, biblical writers are trying to point to. It would be weird to think that the biblical writers thought they understood God perfectly and had it God fully figured out, given all the other passages of scripture that talk about the things they don't understand about God. So I interpret those as trying to, the writers trying to say to the people, look, this vision of God is better than those. And this God, we should, you know, go after this view. But of course, they can make mistakes. And I think many biblical writers did make mistakes and I make mistakes. So we do the best we can to come up with the what we think is the most, um, the picture of God that fits our deepest intuitions, our sense of morality, fits what we know best in the sciences, the arts, the scriptures, uh, fits, uh, you know, is reasonable, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, we're not, we can't be sure about that, but we can make judgments about better and worse views of God. This actually reminds me of something that I, I was, I was preparing for that theology beer camp session. I think you were at that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You were. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and I was, as I was preparing, I was realizing that my, that I have more in common with some Muslims, Jews, Baha'i, and people who don't follow any particular religion than I do with some of my fellow Christians because of my views of God. In other words, I know some Muslims who think about God closer to the way I do than I know of some Southern Baptists who think about God. And that helped me to think to my, that helped me to clarify that sometimes we, um, we start with religious traditions and talk about which is the right one, when maybe we ought to think about visions of the ultimate or visions of God and, and ask questions of which 
do we think is preferable and why do we think some are more preferable than others? Yeah, I really, I appreciated um, when you made that point at uh, Theology Beer Camp. And I also appreciated when you you brought up another idea that's tied into that, um, that we, you know, we're not, don't have time to go too deep into it, but this idea of the possibility of um, different ultimates or maybe different faces of yeah. ultimacy or something like that um that i re you know personally have been finding helpful recently um i think in that regard crucial. yeah yeah, yeah. we got to do a podcast sometime on that because that's a complex thing and and i know the first time i heard that i was like what yeah <laughs> multiple <laughs> right. ultimates i yes. believe in one god not multiple gods you know and it took right. me a while to figure out what was going on there i think Maybe we could help your listeners sometimes work through those issues. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. I would totally be down for that uh, because I find I have found as I've read this in a variety of places, um, going and talking to friends about it, I can explain it. But then once uh, some questions come up, I'm like, oh, well, let me think. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think having continuing the conversation would be helpful. Um but especially too, just because I'll make this one point and then we'll move on from it. I think one thing that it offers and does nicely is it gives us a genuine and deep religious pluralism that respects yeah. other traditions yeah. without trying to appropriate them or, you know, do some kind of like violence to them, not accepting the tradition for what it is, um, but rather says, okay, these traditions can all exist in a genuine, you know, plurality, um, and then they can also inform one another. They can transform one another. It's the humility piece that you've hinted at multiple times during this conversation. So um, I like that a lot. And that was, for me, a, an important facet of thinking about multiple ultimates. But this might surprise you. Belief in multiple ultimates actually helped me to find, to, to, uh, find things in my own Christian tradition that pointed to the possibility of multiple ultimates that I had never seen before. So it actually, the belief in multiple ultimates actually helped me to be a better Christian <laughs> in addition to, uh, you know, affirming the truth in other religious traditions. And so. friends, that is called a lure <laughs> that Thomas orchestrated beautifully uh, and is encouraging further conversation, which I am very much here for. <laughs> well, uh, Tom, I don't know what your, your time schedule looks like, but um, if let me see here, if I could ask you, there's a personal question um, okay. that a listener asks, and then maybe a few, maybe quicker, pragmatic questions. Uh, to kind of wrap things up. Does that sound good to you? Yep. Yep. All right. So here's the personal question. Um, when it comes to deconstruction, what question or maybe plural questions have you personally been uh, working with or wrestling through recently? Recently, I was ready to had an answer, but then you said recently. So what is the, oh yeah. I Let's know define it. recent <laughs> yeah. within the last 10 years. No, <laughs> um, I have been um, officially charged by my denomination with teaching doctrines contrary to the denomination on issues of queer sexuality. And um, I'm awaiting for my trial. I've been preparing for that. 
And in doing so, in the preparing for why I'm affirming uh, member of the Church of Nazarene and why the Church of Nazarene ought to become affirming, I've been thinking about the queer issues and why those are so instrumental in um, the deconstruction process of so many people. I changed my mind on this view 30 years ago, um, but I'm always learning new things. <laughs> and I've been learning new things recently uh, uh, related to this. And one of the things that I think I've been learning uh, that have, in terms of my own deconstruction is um, the incredible power and flexibility of cultural uh, influences on what it means to have a particular gender or sexual attraction. I had not taken as seriously as I should have, or maybe there just wasn't the literature out there, uh, the impact on culture and tradition when it comes to gender and, and sexual attractions. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's where I've been. My head's been for the last six months as I've been preparing for this trial. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a big one, Tom. And I know it's something um, we've done an episode uh, about before. I know you have uh, skin skin in the game, so to speak. That's not just an abstract uh, concept. Um, friends, loved ones, family members, these kind of things, uh, similar to me, right? Um, and so I, um, yeah, that's. I think it's it's so beautiful what you're doing, kind of. I mean, you're you're putting like yourself on the line, <laughs> like people, <laughs> um, you know, it's not just like me who sits at home and does podcasting and like, you know, whatever, um, can say stuff on the internet with little to no ramifications. Like there's actual um, things here at stake for you. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that and also being willing to um, follow where uh, love is guiding and these kind of things again being consistent um and yeah that that cultural piece is something that i've recently uh kind of picked up on as well um and have been trying to learn a little bit um about just the um how much how culture does influence us so much and impact us and actually one of the places um i'm hearing that from is actually in listening to um basically non-white voices talking about um uh like colonialism essentially mm. and like how you know culture is shaped and these kind of things and what it means to decolonize our ideas is similar to the kind of conversation that happens within the realm of like culture and how that you know impacts uh gender sexuality or even like our understanding of the nuclear family or you know whatever so i think that's a that's a big one <laughs> yeah, and it's sure. a vulnerable one. So thanks for sharing mm, and continuing yeah, to welcome. do that publicly. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Well, uh, hmm. let's see here. All right. If let's uh, throw a bone to some people who maybe they've been listening and they're like, look, I really appreciate this kind of work you're doing around deconstruction. I personally, that's not my experience. I haven't had these kind of, faith crises per se, but I do want to help people, um, 
who are deconstructing or who have deconstructed. Maybe it's a clergy member or a family member of someone who's gone through this. What advice might you have for somebody who wants to be supportive of those uh, who are facing something like deconstruction? Yeah, uh, a couple of tips. One, be a listener. Be a non-judgmental listener. Listen to the story and the things they're saying, the questions they're asking, the experience they've had. Be a listener. Uh, Second, um, assume that stories are going to differ. So what someone says was their deconstructive journey is probably not going to be what someone else says. There's going to be some commonalities. I mentioned one about the loss of certainty is pretty widespread. But the deconstructive story of, let's say, someone who's been uh, sexually abused by a leader of a church is probably going to look different from the deconstructive story of someone who started thinking about evolution and decided that, you know, maybe the earth isn't 10,000 years old. So deconstructive stories vary and expect that, be open to that variety. So let's see, a third one. Um, There is a portion of Christendom at the moment who are condemning or at least strongly criticizing people who say they're deconstructing. And this portion of Christianity desperately wants people to return to the traditional or conventional views of God that these particular people find convincing. Um, I want to suggest to folks who want to be, let's say, allies of those who deconstruct to um, be open to the possibility that there are multiple ways to think about God. And maybe even some of these new ways are healthier than the ways that um, many in the tradition have portrayed God. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I I have found myself on more than one occasion contemplating purchasing one of these books that has, you know, there's been a line of books coming out, right? I'm sure you've seen them yeah. uh, and being like trying to invite these people on for conversation. But unfortunately I've found that they're not willing to talk. So at least not to me, <laughs> but um, maybe someone who's cooler, but yeah, I, I, I think all of those are so good. And again, it, I constantly pick up on whenever I talk to you um, just a spirit of humility mm. Um in engaging with, with other people. And so I, I appreciate that. Um, especially dealing with people who are, you know, asking questions and having their entire worldview <laughs> shaken to its right, core. Right. It's scary, right? It's yes, not, uh, well, and that's not I mean, easy. Part of it is, is that as you and I both know, we've been there. So we have this mm-hmm. certain, you know, firsthand experience. And so empathy that comes from that. And I think also, you know, if we're going to bring in the, uh, Enneagram, uh, one of my Enneagram uh, strengths is I'm a helper. I think about what I want to do to help people, and that motivates me. So when I have friends who the other day, one of my friends said, well, these people are deconstructing. They only are doing it because they either want to have more sex or they want to stop going to church. And it was like, come on, you know, that's that's not a helpful way to look at it. You're not listening to these people carefully. You haven't. Uh, I, well, uh, let's let's 
ask the question of how can we help the people? Maybe there are a few for whom this is their motive, but the vast majority of people I know are deconstructing and not enjoying it, <laughs> not doing it because they want to just sleep around or, you know, they, they want to stop going to Sunday morning services. Yeah. There's some people who it's cost them their jobs. Right. I'm one of those people. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. It's, it's, um, that was not fun. Uh, it has I real with, world implications. <laughs> yeah, I talked to someone today on Zoom who um, who is in a ministry position. And if he were to come out with some of the things he's questioning, he'd be gone from that position just like that. So yeah. he's trying to do the delicate dance of deconstructing while keeping his job. That's tough. That's not that's not deconstructing to sleep around or not go to church. That's that's a that's a big issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I have a friend who comes to mind who I think is absolutely brilliant, and um, I have really great conversations with them. But again, the kind of if they were honest and voiced <laughs> some of the things um, that they actually think, their job is on the line, right? And they have. Yep. Um, this particular person is a single parent and has multiple children that they need to take care of and health insurance, all these kind of things. So there's, there's yep. real things tied up in believing X, Y, and Z and, you know, checking the boxes and just to write people off so quickly can be, um, yeah, damaging. Um, cool. All right. So this is, Perhaps a quick one, and then then I'll land the plane with one final question. So here, okay. this person is saying, so I've deconstructed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think maybe I'm ready to try to find a church community again. Mm. Hmm. What advice might you have for somebody uh, in that ship or in that boat? Yeah, this is a, a weak area for me, Josh. I, I don't have a lot of good advice. I, I wish I had this. I directory. am with you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had this directory of places to send people like, oh, there's a really right. healthy church. Right. Um, I do think that your podcast and other podcasts like yours are creating a kind of community. It's not the same as, you know, face to face, but it's something that's important. So there are, are alternative ways to do church today. Um, but I don't have really great advice for this person. Yeah, I, I'm with you, unfortunately. Um, I don't know. It, it's difficult. Cause like really the, the things that come to mind for me is just like, well, now that you know what you know, enter community and guard yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, but that's I don't know. That doesn't sound like great advice either, right? I wish that that wasn't the case. Um, but I think that's realistic it, advice. I, yeah, I think, I think so. Good advice. I was thinking kind of that. I know a number of people are going back to something like home churches. In which, mm -hmm. um, you know, people get together and they talk about their journeys and, you know, it's not the, the usual liturgies of music and reading scripture and whatever, taking an offering, but it's a different kind of church. It's probably more like early church, but um, maybe, maybe my one constructive piece of advice would be, be open to innovative forms of church. 
Yeah. I like that. I, I like that advice as well. And it reminds me too of that. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the kind of, there's another project trip's been working on the whole emerged podcast thing. Yeah. That's been really cool to listen to. Um, yeah. Specifically as someone who's, I caught like, I caught the tail end of emerged and like, didn't know really what that meant. And then started to piece together, like, wait a minute, a lot of these authors I've been reading seem to be a part of something. And that's mm -hmm. kind of was how it formed for me. So I didn't get to see the whole thing. So it's been an interesting bit to listen to. Um, yeah, I've been listening to it and thinking to myself, what can the open and relational movement do to overcome the mistakes of the emerge church yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, because well, there there's, there's obviously some good things too i'm not saying it was all a mistake but um as tony and is and many of them have indicated look the emergent church's heyday is come and gone um now are there things we can learn from that yeah i it's a good question so i think it's still open and we shall see yeah. but uh I guess here we'll we'll land the plane with this. Um, so we've deconstructed, and now maybe we're sitting with some kind of open and relational perspective. And I actually I want to ask this from within the open relational perspective because I know the person who wrote this question it's where they're coming from. Um, okay. So if this is the case, if God can't, um, what can we trust? Where should our faith lie? Mm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I was tempted to make a joke and say, trust the process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if the question is, what can we trust in the sense of what can be, be absolutely sure we're rock solid on? I think we have to give up that impulse. I'm not absolutely rock solid on anything of ultimacy. Um, I believe there's a God. I believe the ways of love are best. I believe certain things about the world, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I don't know them with absolute certainty. So if that's the kind of trust we're looking for, I think that's an illusion. I would want to say that um, the trust that I do have, that's not a certain or rock solid trust, is a trust that there's something deep within me that I call God that's calling me to something better to use Whiteheadian language. It's calling me to intensities of experience or value to use the Whitehead's word that trip loves to zestiness. Um, and while I'm often confused about the precise way to respond to that, lure that wooing that call um i think life makes best sense if i think there is a loving lurer a loving persuader who is at the heart of that call and i want to respond well to it yeah well said tom i uh yeah i mean that's the that's the that's the vision, at least that I am willing to to steal again from Aaron Simmons, um, risk myself in the direction, yeah, of I love that frame. that <laughs> framework yeah. of that being true. Um, you know, yeah, and your it, question, 
I don't know if your questioner had this motive in mind, but it reminds me of something that I write about in the book. And that is that um, many people who come from more conservative backgrounds like you and me, we had all our faith and security in an inerrant Bible. And then when that got taken away from us, we wanted to put it somewhere else. Some people went to science said, okay, now let's get rid of this fluffy spirituality, this woo-woo stuff. Let's get some hard, cold facts of science. And they thought that was going to give them that security and certainty. And that doesn't do that either. Um, and I don't know if your questioner has this motive, but I want to challenge that, that challenge people who think they just want to replace one certain foundation with another to say there are no certain foundations. And I know that's hard to get used to, but once you do, there's a freedom in that that's uh, hard to describe to someone who is looking for the foundation. Yes, I am with you. And I, it's actually funny because this, the person who asked this question has also asked um, of myself and also of another uh, friend of ours um, in conversations we've had in other podcasts, like, where do you guys find <laughs> the freedom to ask the kind of questions that you do? And I mm -hmm. think it's the kind of key is in what you're saying, but it is really hard to describe that um, yeah. if you haven't experienced it. And yeah, because I mean, it's a ultimately it's like an epistemological question. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. The, and I think humans are at least appear to be kind of hardwired for some kind of certainty or at least to seek it out. Like, I mean, I think this is why conspiracy theories are so popular yeah. is because it's kind of this like secret knowledge or when there's something really crazy and chaotic and, and scary. Um, and we have a lot of fear ha having somebody be like, Oh, well, here's really what's going on. That's yeah. something for us to, you know what I mean? Latch onto and be like, well, here it is. And so that yep. resisting that is is part of the key, but it's it's difficult. It takes practice, and I'm not perfect at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it also reminds me of, and, and this is going to come across as a little bit too simplistic, but I'm going to say it in a simplistic way to make the point. Uh, it reminds me of a long-lasting debate of my youth on what Calvinists call eternal security. Um eternal security i think is the psychologically motivated quest to find a sure and certain foundation that we can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you know we're on the right side of history that that we're going to heaven we have salvation whatever the the code word is there and eternal security says look there's a sovereign god who's omnipotent who decided who decreed in fact, predestined, who's going to be in heaven? Maybe it's everybody. If you're into, you know, uh, something like universalism, or maybe it's just the elect, but this God through omnipotent power provides the security that everlastingly you're going to be with God. And man, that sounds so beautiful to some people. Now, of course, all the problems with omnipotence raise their head. You get the problem of evil, yada, yada, yada. But that's one way to try to find that security, that trust that the person seemed to be asking about in the in the question. John Wesley comes along and says, uh, you know, it's not eternal security. 
There is a kind of assurance, however, we have, but it's not the assurance based on God's omnipotence. It's the assurance that comes that we're loved by God. And that's hard for some people to get their head around. Maybe it's because of their own maternal or paternal backgrounds, their attachments and things. I don't know what all the causes are, but once you get feel deep in your bones that there is a God of love who loves you no matter what, then I think that's the best trust you can have. Um, and I think that is in general what the open relational vision is offering. Well, amen. <laughs> I think that's the... <laughs> now all with every eye closed and every yes. head bowed. <laughs> altar call. It's just the open and relational altar calls. That's right. Um, <laughs> you guys are not being coerced. We're not going to use lights and fog machines. You can do it on your own accord. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of vision is, um, is beautiful. And... Uh, you know, something that I think it took me, um, we, I mean, we've talked about this before, but that understanding that, that God actually is love and that God loves me, um, was something that actually it took experiential, like it was a mix. I needed the, I didn't have the framework for that. So open relational kind of provided me the framework to say, maybe God is love. And then that opens me to something like contemplative practice where I get this more experiential kind of understanding of the divine, like, Oh, well, at least the God that I experience is love. Right. Or I don't know the quote exactly, but there's someone who said something along the lines of like all of the mystics who claim to have experience of the God of God, none of them met like a tyrant <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's some, uh, some power in that as well, oh. but. Well, yeah, this for letting me chat about this stuff and and introducing people to the God After Deconstruction project and and all that stuff that I said we've got going on. I really appreciate it, Josh. Yeah, it's been fun. I'm thank you for for coming on and hanging out again. I look forward to uh I'll be there in February. Uh um, Right. I yeah, I would absolutely love. I've had a couple people ask me about the the event in Denver. Um and it would be I'm trying to figure out a way to get myself there so that might be a, a lot awesome. of fun as well to to show up and harass you guys there um yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to the the book project you and uh tripper working on together i look forward to the class that'll be a lot of fun um so yeah thank you guys so much for the time and energy and effort you've put into making all of those things happen and the extra time you've taken to come and uh, hang out with me today so yeah it was my appreciate pleasure it. Josh. i've just got to keep coming on so trip doesn't get ahead of me in the number of yeah. appearances <laughs> right. we got to make sure we got to keep trip down right <laughs> we got to keep him uh, always always guessing or we could devise a plan where we don't quite tell him the truth and just always whenever he asks how many we just always give you plus one on trip so he doesn't <laughs> he never quite catch up <laughs> good deal well tom thank you again so much i'll be sure to link all the linkable stuff and um yeah i guess until next time uh hopefully we'll I'll see you soon in in february um and listeners hopefully we'll see some of you guys there as well peace and love guys <laughs>